How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so everyone can have uh, the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to focus on the Word. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. Notice the emphasis is always on the essence of God, on who He is, not who we are. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that is, those that we confess, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's everything that we don't remember, didn't know was a sin, ignored, denied was a sin, He cleanses us from all unrighteousness so that we're restored to fellowship and can resume our forward momentum in the Christian life. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you are the one that we can always come to in times of uh, difficulty, in times of crisis, in times of any kind of personal challenge, because we know that you are always there and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You never change. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And, Father, we are so glad that you are faithful, because when we look at the different ways in which things seem so chaotic and crazy in our world around us, and as things seem to go from bad to worse, we have you to turn to. And because you are our rock and our fortress, uh, you are our source of stability, we can relax even in the midst of chaos. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, we might realize what a great, great, tremendous gift we've been given in terms of the presence of God the Holy Spirit in the church, in the church age, indwelling us, filling us, strengthening us, enabling us. And, Father, we pray that we might uh, understand how important it is to focus on our spiritual life and our spiritual uh, momentum, that we might not be distracted by the things that go on around us and that we may focus on the mission that you have set before us as individual Christians and as members of the church. And we pray as we continue our study on uh, Romans 7, understanding the law, grace, and what you've given us, that these things might be very, very clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I want to start tonight with just a couple of comments about the election the other day. Everybody I know was disappointed. At least I hope you were. In my conversations with a number of Christians, I have... Uh, and I understand this, uh, although I'm going to be a little firm here. I understand we're this way. We're, I hear this from people in a lot of different ways. Whenever we get disappointed, I, and I'm tired of it, I'm just sick of it, because it just shows this kind of shoddy, s- simplistic, wrong-headed thinking among Christians that get, has gotten us in the mess we're in. Well, it's God's will. Well, in a sense, that's true, but in a sense, it's not true. 
The reason it's not true is because you, you, you and I use that as a way to say, well, it really isn't bad. We dump it on God. It's God's fault. He's the one who planned it this way. And you've just become a five-point Calvinist. You've just denied human responsibility, and you've just laid it all on God's plan. And that's dead wrong. The reason evil succeeds is the same now as it was 200 years ago. Good men do nothing. It's volition. It's not God's volition. He allowed it. It's his permissive will. But it's not his desired will. His desired will is righteousness, a righteous government, a government of justice, a just a government of law. And what happened on Tuesday was not the uh, voting that put you put a government of law back in place or the potential for it, but one that affirmed all of the evil that has been going on for the last four years and beyond. It's not just a Democrat thing, but it primarily is. It is primarily a liberal problem and a moderate problem and a failure to understand absolutes. But it doesn't help to ameliorate our disappointment by just saying, well, it's God's will. In a sense, it is. It's his permissive will. But if you don't put an adjective in front of will, don't use it because you're muddying the water. It, because what you're saying, you're, you're doing a, this is a classic fallacy in logic. You're using the term and you're slipping from one meaning to the other without realizing it. It is God's will. It's his permissive will, but it's not his desire. And what we do very subtly is we say, because it's God's permissive will, then God wanted it to happen so we can be okay with it. We can't be okay with it. You shouldn't be okay with it. There's not one place in the scripture. You go back and you read Isaiah, Jeremiah. Yes, it was God's permissive will to allow evil kings to reign over Judah and Israel, but it wasn't his desired will. And if you read the prophets, they castigated the people because of it. They blamed the people. They didn't say, well, it's God's will, so we'll just be happy with it. You don't find that attitude in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Daniel, in any of the prophets, not once. So don't do that. You know, we do that when somebody dies. Well, it's God's will. In a sense, it is. But Jesus wept outside the grave of Lazarus because the original desired will of God was not for people to go through the pain and the suffering and the horrors of death. He looked upon, he wasn't crying because he looked at the grave of Lazarus. You read the text, he wept because he looked on the heartache and the grief of the people. And that was not the desired intended will of God from the beginning for people to go through to be spiritually dead and to go through the pain and the heartache of sin. That is his judgment, but that's not his desired will. That is his permissive will because he allows sin, because he allows free will. And I've heard people say, well, I heard one unbeliever make the comment, well, what kind of God is this that would allow this to happen? See, that's the same, same version, but it's the unbeliever's version. It's God's fault. And it's lousy God that would let this happen. We have to understand, folks, that I've said all along, the reason evil happens is because free will happens. And as long as we have a God who allows free will, he permits evil to run its course. 
But that doesn't mean that we are to somehow rationalize the existence of evil and the horrible things that come with it by minimizing it with this cliche that it's God's will. It is God, God permitted it, but God permitted the Holocaust. He permitted the Black Death, and we don't minimize the horrors of those things by just dismissing it. It's God's will. No, it's not God's desired will. God wants something that is much higher than that. But that's the result of fallen human will. So we have to be careful with that. The reason we're in the mess we're in is because of human volition. Part of that is because of a failure in Christianity, of not institutional Christianity. I'm not using a vague, ambiguous entity to blame, but Christians. Christians have failed. Christians have failed. This room ought to be full every time I'm up here in the pulpit. And that's a failure on the part of Christians and ought to know the Word of God. You look at what's happening among professed believers in this country under the age of 40. They're not showing up at church. You look out here. There's one or two that are here that are under the age of 40, three or four. Usually not on Tuesday or Thursday night. We've had a lot more on Sunday morning. They don't show up Tuesday night. That's not my fault. That's not this church's fault. That's not the fault of, oh, you're a teaching church. You know, you teach pretty heavy. Well, across the spectrum, in this city, we have five different, broadening it out to the, the suburbs and the sub-sub-suburbs and the distant areas outside of Harris County, we have five or six teaching churches. Each one of these pastors has different levels of education, has different levels of experience, and different levels at which they teach. Some of them, because of the, the congregation and the level of growth of the, of the individuals in their churches, have chosen to teach at a lower, less challenging level, let's say, second or third grade. Others are fifth or sixth grade. Others are eighth or ninth grade. And I shoot for a little higher level. But we have, I've always had people who come in and sit in front of me, and if they stay, doesn't matter what their background is, they learn a tremendous amount and they can grow because ultimately spiritual growth isn't dependent upon your human IQ or your training or your background or, or any of those things. It's dependent upon your volition. But all of these churches, whether the pastors are teaching at a um, somewhat more elementary level because that's where their church is or at a more advanced level, the young people aren't coming. You go to Baptist churches, they're having the same problem. You go to many of them, they're having the same problem because Christians don't want to know the Word. They don't want to apply the Word. They don't want to be involved in evangelism. They don't want to be a light to the world. They are self-absorbed just like their pagan counter, counterparts. And as long as that is true of the church, of individual believers, and they're not excited about the Word, they're not excited about explaining the gospel to their friends and bringing their unsaved friends to church and giving their unsaved friends the gospel and bringing their saved friends to church so that they can really hear what good Bible teaching is. When that doesn't happen, this is what we're going to get in our culture because they, the, the church, Christians, have lost the desire to really impact the culture around them. When they think that all that is necessary to impact the culture around them is to come and study the Word, and to keep a good doctrinal notebook and to go home and just apply what they've learned 
selectively in their own life because part of what they're learning is to be involved in evangelism and reaching out to others. That's all they do. Then they're a miserable failure. They're a partial success, which means they're a complete failure because they're not doing what the Word says to do in terms of that uh, of that outreach. They're not having any kind of impact or even attempting to have an impact on the culture around them. I, I remember back uh, as I was a small child in the 50s and a teen in the 60s and growing up in a church that was growing by leaps and bounds, it was because the people in the pew were excited about what they were learning at church, and they were bringing people with them. They just they they couldn't wait to get all their friends to come and hear somebody teach the Bible, and that's how that that grew. And I'm not jumping on people just in this congregation. If the shoe fits, you need to wear it. But it, it's it's not just a problem here; it's a problem across this country, and and that's a failure on the part of Christians. And Christians are more comfortable living like their pagan neighbors than being a distinct counterculture within our within our culture. And the ones that do too often are just legalistic. They're the uh, uh, you know the, the Christian Reconstructionist crowd and the post millennial, the theonomists and the legalists, and and that's as wrong on the other side. So that's. That's the reason we're in the mess we're in. The only solution to change the worldview of this, and that's the problem, is the pagan worldview of this culture. And the only thing that's going to change that isn't going to be a um, somebody who just has conservative political economic values because that's not the real problem. The real problem is the heart of the people in this nation wants, like Rush Limbaugh has been saying, they want a Santa Claus. They want somebody who's going to give them everything. They want a government that's going to hand out, and they don't know enough to even look at, be able to look at Europe or the Soviet Union and see how this has been a historical failure because they've been denied a good education either by their own volition or somebody else's. And until that changes, we're going to see this go down. And as long as it's going to go down, the one thing that you and I need is we need to be in the Word even more because it's not going to get any easier. It's going to get a whole lot tougher. And the only thing that's going to get us through those kind of difficult, difficult times is going to be the Word of God. And the only place you're going to get it is to be in, in, in class every time that, that the Bible's being taught because the only thing that enables us to get through really tough times is the doctrine that's in our soul. And that is... Uh, a sad thing because the few that are here represent the few that that are <clears throat> involved as Christians throughout the country, and it's it's a minority that is shrinking rapidly. Twenty years from now, things go this, are going in the same way. When most of us in this room are in our seventies and eighties then we're going to have some serious, serious problems facing us because government's going to be broke. There's not going to be anything there. It's going to be hard to find a church because there's been such a hostility towards Christianity for the last 25 or 30 years. So we need to be in prayer, and we need to be doing what we're supposed to do as individuals, and that is witnessing, that is being excited about the Word of God in our life, and reaching out and being a light to the world. And that's part of our job. All right.
Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is a crucial chapter. I haven't worked through it in the detail I am now in the past, but it fits so perfectly with what Paul teaches in Galatians chapter 5, with what Paul is teaching in the framework of Romans 6, 7, and 8. Just to remind anyone who is here for the first time or listening for the first time, this is part of our study in Romans. But what we're doing as we come to Romans, especially Romans chapter 7, we're seeing this focus on what is the Christian's relationship to the law in the first six verses of, uh, of Romans 7. And in Romans 7, verse 6, the end of that paragraph, Paul says, but now we have been delivered from the law, that is the Mosaic law, having died, because we died to sin at the cross, and I mean when we trusted in Christ as our Savior and our identification with Christ on the cross, having died to what we were held by, so that, that's a purpose clause, why have we been delivered from the law? So that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, there's a couple of key words you should circle in Romans 7, 6. The first is that word serve. That word serve is the Greek verb diakoneo, which means to minister. Sometimes it's tra- some versions translated minister, some tra- versions translated serve. Then we have the spirit and then we have the letter. Okay, those are three key words that are all part of what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is partially defending his own ministry, which is the word diakoneo, his service to the Corinthian congregation as part of his ministry service as an apostle. He says in verse 3, Clearly you are an epistle, you that is the Corinthian church, you're a letter, a letter in form of the life of human beings that that you've changed. You may be carnal, you may be disobedient, but nevertheless there's a difference between what you were before you were saved and what you are now. You are therefore a living letter of Christ, ministered, there's that word again, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by what? The spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is of the letter. I mean, that is of the heart. So you have the word ministered. You have the word spirit. And then you have the word, the, the phrase written not with ink. What do you write with ink? You write a letter. So it's just a different way of talking about a letter. So that's the same thing that you have the same concepts there that we have in Romans 7, 6. Service the newness of the spirit versus the oldness of the letter. And Paul goes on to say in verse uh, um, 7, or excuse me, verse 4, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, not that the power is in us because of our training, our background, our skill, or anything else. Ultimately, it's all in God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Whatever we face, 
not just as pastors or apostles or ministers, but any. this applies to any Christian. Whatever we face, the sufficiency, the provision comes from God. He's the one who gives us the resources to face it and handle it, whatever it is. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient. He's the one who gave us the capability. That's what that word means, as we've seen in the in the Greek, hikanos, the ability, the competency. He made us competent as ministers of the new covenant. Now, he brings in that, that new idea, the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. So made us sufficient as what? As ministers. The Greek noun there is diakonos. It's the noun form of the verb we looked at earlier that's in Romans 7 6, service or ministry, and is in uh, 2 Corinthians 3 uh, 3 3 here. Again, so we have now the noun form of that word. We are ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. So here those three concepts and three words show up again. So this is show, what I'm showing you is that going over to 2 Corinthians 3 is not just a rabbit trail, but it's a, a, what Paul says here about the spirit, the newness of the spirit versus the oldness of the letter helps us to understand what he's talking about over there in Romans chapter 7. The, and, but we have to really work at understanding all of this. So we've got these, this concept here. Now last time I started looking at the idea of the new covenant because this is, this is central here. We're ministers of the new covenant. Now the new covenant in all the passages that we have of the new covenant in scripture, the new covenant, whenever there's a, um, a party involved in the new covenant mentioned, it's always between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's never with the church. Now, if you've been around a while and you've been exposed to the teaching of uh, various uh, dispensationalists over time, you would know that back in the 50s, in that stage of our of the development of exegesis and understanding, it was typical of people like Lewis Berry Chafer, Charles Ryrie, John Walbert early on. Uh, both Ryrie and Walbert taught this early on, that there was there were two new covenants. One was with Israel, and one was with the church. The tr- and, and this would be a passage that they would go to and say, see, we're ministers of the new covenant, therefore there must be a new covenant with the church. See, that's when you make a theological deduction that really leaps about four steps away from the passage, because there are other ways to understand our ministry of the new covenant without having a new covenant with the church. Because it doesn't say there's a new covenant with the church. The new covenant is with Israel and doesn't get established until the future, but it has benefits that go to Gentiles today. So just as I taught several years ago in Romans, when you you have these new covenant passages, there's the... I'm going to have show and tell. You got the party of the first part, which is God, and the party of the second part, which is the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then you have Gentiles over here. Now, in the Old Testament, you had God made a covenant with Abraham. And in that contract, it says, because of this contract, Gentiles are going to get blessing. So 
In the Old Testament, although it doesn't say this, in the Old Testament, when Jonah went to Assyria, he is a minister of the Abrahamic covenant to the Assyrians. Okay? Follow me? Because he's being a blessing, fulfilling the third, the third part of the Abrahamic covenant, which said, you will be a blessing to all the nations. So he's fulfilling that. So he's a minister of the Abrahamic blessing to Gentiles in the Old Testament. Same thing with Elisha and Nahum the, the, uh, Naaman the Syrian. He was a minister to the Gentiles. So when we get into the New Testament, we have something similar. We have the New Covenant, which is future. Okay, so the New Covenant is going to be future, but it's still between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But now it's going to bring blessing to Gentiles in the sense of the church. But there's a different dimension here because of the identification of the church with Christ, who is party of the first part, our participation in the new covenant, which is with the house of Israel, comes not on the human side, but it comes on the divine side because we're in Christ. So that helps us understand how we as Christians can be ministers of the new covenant but there's not a new covenant with the church like there is with Israel and with Judah. And it has elements of it that are related to the new covenant. They're similar to the new covenant with the, um, with Israel, which helps us understand this role, role of the spirit. So all of this plays together in helping to understand the role of the spirit and this is explained in verses uh, 7 and 8. We'll get back to that. So I started off looking at the new covenant last time, that this is the eighth and the final covenant in the Old Testament. It's the fifth Jewish covenant. So what are the other Jewish covenants? Well, there's the Abrahamic covenant, and then there's the Mosaic covenant, and then there's the Palestinian covenant. It used to be called the Palestinian covenant, but a better term is the land covenant or the real estate covenant, where God promises the land to Israel. Then there's the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. And then the uh, fifth Jewish covenant is the new covenant, which the others have all been made with Israel. The Palestinian co- uh, or land covenant is in Deuteronomy uh, 29. The Davidic covenant is in 2 Samuel 7. That's when those were established with Israel. But God doesn't establish this covenant till till later. The Davidic covenant... All it's established. The Abrahamic covenant's established. The um, Gentile covenants, the creation covenant, the Adamic covenant, and the uh, Noahic covenant are all established. So the only one that hasn't been implemented, that ha- that hasn't been established yet with Israel and Judah, is this last one, the new covenant. The covenant's a contract between God and man. It's God's solemn pledge to fulfill certain promises that are outlined in the covenant. It has a legal nature. God is always faithful to his contract, even when man isn't. Now, some people have said, well, you know, as I pointed this out last time, um, that the term that we used before, that is still used a lot, is conditional versus unconditional covenants. And there's a sense in which that's right, but there's a sense in which that's wrong, too, because even in the... Uh, even in the Abrahamic covenant, there's a condition. They're not, Israel is not going to enjoy the land that God's given them unless they're obedient. 
And there's an unconditional nature to the Mosaic Covenant. What's the unconditional nature of the Mosaic Covenant? The unconditional nature is still in effect. Oh, my. Deuteronomy 30. If you repent and turn back to me, I will restore you to the land. That hasn't happened yet. And when it does happen, it happens as the final fulfillment, unconditional fulfillment, an unconditional promise in the Mosaic Law. So you see, there are elements of conditionality and unconditionality within each of those other covenants. It may be primarily an unconditional covenant or primarily a conditional covenant, but the better word is permanent versus temporary. That's where we get this. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was not designed to be permanent. It was designed to be replaced, and it was replaced by the new covenant. So I also pointed out that this contract or, or covenant can be between two parties of equal stature or one who's superior, one who's inferior. And in the Greek, it has this idea of a unilateral enactment from one to another as, as we looked at last time. That's the point I just made about conditional versus uh, insta- using the term permanent insta- and temporary instead of co- conditional and unconditional. So the New Covenant is the third permanent covenant that's based on the Abrahamic Covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. Land covenant, land promise in the Abrahamic Covenant is expanded in the Real Estate Covenant. The seed promise is expanded in the Davidic Covenant. And the blessing to the Gentiles is expanded in the New Covenant. It's an unconditional covenant, meaning that the promise does not depend on the fulfillment of its promises. But the promise is there will be a fulfillment. Israel fulfills it because God gives them a new heart and a new mind. He fulfills it for them. Okay, then I listed some passages, and we started looking at some of them last week. Here's a list of various scriptures, all of which uh, mention something about uh, the New Covenant although they don't use that term. The term that is usually used is an everlasting covenant. Only in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, do we have the term the new covenant. All these other passages either uh, state results that are clearly stated in other passages as, as what God promised with the new covenant, or it refers to the fact that he will in the future make a permanent or everlasting covenant with Israel. And all of these passages, including Hebrews 8, when it's mentioned in the New Testament, it's always between God as the party of the first part and the house of Judah and the house of Israel as the party of the second part. Its importance is that it provides for the regeneration of the nation Israel, not the individuals, because they're already regenerate. Remember, in the tribulation period, they're, they're, because they're saved, they're going to heed Jesus' words that when you see these signs, you're going to flee to the wilderness. So they're already saved. They're already regenerate. But in the new sense of the millennial kingdom regeneration, new covenant sense, that doesn't occur until after Jesus returns and establishes the kingdom. Just like their uh, Old Testament believers were regenerate, they got new life. They didn't get the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, regeneration comes with other features. In the future, 
In the millennial kingdom, regeneration will come with different features. It's just like uh, I use Logos Bible software. When we bought Logos 3, that was a different dispensation. It didn't have near the features that Logos 4 had. Logos 4 was faster, slicker, had all kinds of different tools and things that you could use. Logos 4 just got replaced last week with Logos 5. We're in the millennial kingdom now. We've got a whole new set of features. Okay, but it's still the same program. Okay, I hope that analogy works a little bit. There's regeneration in every dispensation, but it comes with different features. Sort of like the first dispensation, it's regeneration 1.0. Then you get to the next dispensation, you got regeneration 2.0. Then you get to the next dispensation, it's regeneration 3.0. Each one comes with new features. See, I'm trying to communicate to the younger generation. The rest of you are going, hmm. Okay, provisions. Go through all the different provisions. I just wanted to look at some scriptures. We looked last time. The core passage is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, where God promises future tense. This is at the time of Jeremiah, roughly 600 B.C. He says, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It's yet future. It didn't happen any time in Jeremiah's lifetime. It didn't happen prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he specifically states in verse 32 that it's not like the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. When was that? That was 1446 B.C. with with the exodus with Moses. So it's not going to be like that covenant. So here's a clear statement. New covenant replaces that old covenant. Verse 33, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Those days is... Most of the time, in the in the major prophets, in some of the minor prophets like uh, uh, Nahum and a- Amos and um, Zechariah, those are dealing with the end times. It's a reference to the uh, time of Jacob's trouble, what we refer to as the tribulation period. So it's after those days. It's after the tribulation period. It's after the time of Jacob's trouble that God is going to establish and initiate this covenant with Israel. And then he's going to put their law in their minds, write it on their hearts. He'll be their God, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother. We covered that the last time. There's not going to be a need for one person to teach another because with regeneration is going to come an intuitive exhaustive knowledge of the Scripture. We don't have that today. We don't have anything close to that today. We have something similar. We have the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand the Scripture, but we still have to spend a lot of time reading and studying the Scripture to to understand it. Then I went to uh, Ezekiel 61, 8 and 9. I think this is about where I stopped the last time, and I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, Isaiah 61 is a great chapter on the future kingdom. And I just want to point out a couple of things, go back to pick up the context. The context begins in Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
This is the servant. We've studied this in the past, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, speaking here. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus read this at the beginning of his ministry. He was asked to read in the synagogue the day they read. They read this was the reading in the synagogue that day, but he stopped halfway through right where I stopped. Why? Because up to that point, it's first first uh, his first coming, his first advent. After that, it's talking about what happens later in the second advent, the day of vengeance of our God. That's the tribulation period, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Notice the contrast here. It is only God who provides real comfort. Now, we share that comfort. Second Corinthians 1 talks about the fact that we suffer so that we can comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted. So there is part of our fellowship with other believers is to comfort, and that's not just putting your arm around somebody, giving them a hug, telling them you care about it. that. All that that's important. I'm not minimizing that. But the real comfort comes from the content of doctrine, from, from Scripture, uh, sending somebody a note, putting a promise in there that relates to what's going on in their life, uh, telling them that, sending them an email, uh, with that, so that they're just to encourage them with the truth of Scripture. But what we see in the tribulation is that God will, and only God will comfort those who mourn. That is the survivors, the Jewish survivors and Gentile survivors, the Jewish survivors of the tribulation period, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. The ashes that everything's been destroyed in the tribulation, God restores beauty, joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. They're sad. They're sorrowful. They've lost so many friends and family have died. They've lost, but they're given the garment of praise to replace the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's talking about the millennial kingdom. Now, skip down a couple of uh, verses. And we read in verse... Read in verse um, 4, And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up former desolation, shall repair the ruined cities. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and, and vine dressers, that is... Uh, the Gentiles will be under the authority of Israel. But you, that is Israel, shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in the land they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. What's the context? The context is this happens uh, in the land when they're restored and when they are placed over Israel. Now, that is important for understanding that this, it, this is the timing related to, uh, related to this, this covenant. Verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. 
point that I was making earlier, God loves justice. He hates injustice. How can it be God's will in a positive sense when an unjust government gets elected? He doesn't love that. He allows it, but he doesn't love it. So don't try to minimize it with some sort of supercilious rationalization. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. So this is when the Lord makes it still. He says, I will make with them, future tense, an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. So this just emphasizes that it is a future covenant and it is an eternal covenant. Now we skip over a couple of books, go from Isaiah past Jeremiah over to Ezekiel. Now Isaiah was about 730 or so to 720, 710 B.C. Now, Ezekiel and Jeremiah are contemporaries about the time of the destruction of the southern kingdom of, uh, southern kingdom of Judah. So we're in Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel has been taken captive in one of the early transports taken over to, to uh, Babylon. And he is ministering to the Jews in captivity. This would also include Daniel. In chapter 11, he writes, and at this point I think he is still in Israel. He hasn't been transported yet. And 11, 18, and 19, he's, there's a promise that God will restore Israel. He says, therefore, Say, God is instructing Ezekiel here. He says, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered. Now that scattering is known as the diaspora. That's the scattering of Jews. It began with, in 580, actually in 722 with the northern kingdoms being, northern kingdom being taken out into captivity, followed up in 720, I mean in 586, with um, uh, Diaspora 2.0 as the southern kingdom is taken out. And when they return at the time of Zerubbabel in 538, it's only a partial returning. There's still Jewish communities scattered all over the Levant, all over the Roman Empire. There are Jewish communities in Parthia and Babylon still. That was a major... There were almost as many people... There were more people outside of Judea at the time of Christ than there were there. A partial return was necessary, so there was a group there for the Messiah to come to. Do you see a parallel with the day? There has to be an entity in Israel for the tribulation period to take place. Otherwise, there's nobody for the Antichrist to make a peace treaty with at the beginning of the tribulation period, according to Daniel 9. So... God is talking here, I will gather you. This is at the end of the tribulation period. I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the uh, countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. There's the fulfillment of the the land covenant. And then, uh, that's in verse 17, then verse 18, and they will go there and they will take away all its detestable things, 
and all its abominations from there. That's a removal of idolatry. That hasn't happened yet. If you go to Israel, most Jews living in Israel are not orthodox. They're not observant. They're just secular, uh, but they're not religious at all. So this will be a time, there'll be a, uh, a spiritual cleansing. And then verse 19, there's an individual internal change. Then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them. Now, the people that this is happening to have already been saved and justified. They escaped to Petra. They came with the Lord back into the land. But now they're getting this regeneration, sort of regeneration 5.0 in the millennial kingdom. Uh, then I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh. Now, look at that. The difference between a heart of flesh and a heart of stone. A heart of stone is one that's hard, that is not responsive. That's re- That relates to what we see in the... In, in the illustration of the uh, the uh, spirit and the letter in in Second Corinthians three, because it picks up on that analogy of the hardness of the tablets, or because there's no change internally in the part of the uh, Jews under the Mosaic law. So under the new covenant, they get a heart of flesh for the purpose that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts follow the desire for the detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads. That's the judgment on the unbelievers that, that go through the tribulation and they're sent to the lake of fire. That applies to Jew and Gentile. Ezekiel 36 is the next passage on the new covenant. Ezekiel 36 25 and following. Now, do you see anything in, in, you see some things in here that are similar to what we experience in the church age, but they're not the same. This is why we can't say that the new covenant went into effect on the day of Pentecost, because we're not experiencing this kind of ministry from the Holy Spirit. This is only something similar in some ways. 36.25. This whole section is talking about how God is going to restore the nation and what that's going to be like. Verse 25. Let's look at verse 24. We see the parallel. He says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. See, it's the same time period as the passage we we just looked at earlier in Ezekiel 11. It's, It's talking about at the end of the tribulation period when all of Israel is restored to the land. And then he says in verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Now, they're already saved individually. This is a cleansing, a national cleansing, because there's a restoration to their national ministry and national function among the nations in the world. He says, I will, back in verse 22 or 23, said, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. So now, in contrast to that verse 25, he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. This is talking about the nation as a whole, that distinction between individual and national 
uh, or individual and corporate involvement or ministry. I will give you a new heart and put a new, new spirit within you, and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse uh, 27, I will put my spirit within you. So that's the indwelling of the spirit, but it's not, it doesn't come with the same features that the indwelling of the spirit comes with today. It has these other aspects to it. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. See, God put his spirit in us today, but he doesn't cause us to walk in his statutes because we don't. Just look at what happened Tuesday, prime example. We don't walk in his statutes. He doesn't make us. That's the difference between now and in the, in, in the millennial kingdom. There's going to be this total uh, internal change that goes beyond anything that we've seen before. And they will keep his judgments and do them. Verse 28, then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your forefathers, fulfillment of the uh, land covenant. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Then we go to the next chapter. We get a little more expansion on this. This is the, again, we have the dry bones passage. And then at the end of that in verse 21, we read, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, same time period, end of the tribulation period, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, that's Samaria and the hill country of Judea, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. That will be the Lord Jesus Christ. One king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. Hasn't happened yet. Not even close. Verse 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. See, this is the faithfulness of God. However much Israel was unfaithful, however much they, the nation corporately rejected God, God doesn't reject them. He's true to his covenant. <clears throat> Verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them. This is literal David. He, In his resurrection body, he's going to be the prince who rules over Israel uh, under under the underlordship under Jesus Christ. They shall And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall all walk in my judgments, observe my statutes, and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwell, and they shall dwell there. They, their children, their children, children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Finally, verse 26. No, not finally. Verse 26. Uh, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. So the new covenant is also called an everlasting covenant, and now it's called a covenant of peace. And it shall be, and it's an everlasting covenant. So he connects the two together there in the terminology. Shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. That's what's going to be described in chapters 30, 39, or chapters 40 and following with the uh, millennial temple. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. 
My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is amidst forever. Okay, that's all New Covenant stuff. The point of this is that we see is that all of these passages again and again emphasize that this goes into effect when God restores Israel to the land, brings them back from the four corners of the earth, and reestablishes the nation under the rulership of the of David, the prince, in the millennial kingdom. It's not today. We have similarities and foreshadowings today that are based on the new covenant, but it's not the new covenant. It's but it gives us just a hint in some ways of what it will be like. So we get into this question then, going back to Second Corinthians three. I was hoping I would get out, get finished this today, and we'd get back into Romans seven, but not, maybe not quite. What does this mean, letter versus spirit? What we have here is in verse six that we're sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So there's this contrast between letter and spirit. Look at verse seven. Uh, if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, so there's that, that idea of stones, that was glorious. But the ministry of the Spirit, verse 8, is going to be more glorious. Okay, so there's this contrast. So first of all, we have to decide what's this contrast between letter versus spirit. spirit. Remember, the letter is written on the stones, but it has its own glory. So it's not wrong it's not bad, it's just insufficient, okay? Now, this contrast between the letter and the spirit is grossly mistaught. The first wrong interpretation is that letter versus spirit is the idea of a literal meaning versus a spiritual or allegorical meaning. This has a root going back to the early 3rd century with an early church father by the name of Origen who did some good things and a lot of bad things in terms of his teaching, one of which that he brought in this whole allegorical system of, of instruction. And he argued that letter referred to the literal external sense of Scripture and that spirit referred to a spiritual, internal, and hidden sense of Scripture. So you had to get to that hidden sense, which didn't have anything to do with the literal, historical, geographical surface meaning of the text. That opens a door to, well, you can make the text mean anything you want it to mean. And you'll hear people use it that way uh, many times, that the letter kills. This is almost a, a, an idiom in English coming out of the Bible, where the letter kills but the Spirit makes alive. So don't emphasize the details of that law. If you emphasize the details of that law, then that's just going to destroy everything. Then you have another interpretation of this, which uh, tries to state, state that letter refers to a legalistic interpretation of the law. But Paul isn't talking, he's not contrasting different ways of interpreting the law here. He's talking about what's provided, not its interpretation. 
So this view looks that the letter is a legalistic interpretation of the law and tries to relate that, the, the meaning of the letter, to the veil that's mentioned down in verse 14, their blinds were minded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, that this, trying to connect it to that, and saying that the letter is the veiled mind of the Israelite um, try, uh, hearing the law. And this is a very popular interpretation, but again, it doesn't fit what's going on here. It's not a contrast between what humans do and what God does. In Romans 7, Paul said, Romans seven twelve, Paul says that the law is holy, just, and good. So he's not condemning the law here. What he means is that the law on stones didn't give people the ability to obey the law on stones. The letter didn't change the internals of the person. That's what the new covenant does. It changes. It's going to give them a heart of flesh. It's going to give them a, a, a new a, a new mind, a new heart. And that's that's not given by the old law. So it's not that the law was wrong. It's just that it was insufficient. A third interpretation is simply that letter refers to any kind of warped interpretation or misuse of the law. But there are two places, and part of the problem here is that Paul uses this analogy of the letter versus the spirit in only about three other places. One is in Romans 2, 27 and 29, and another is in Romans 7, 6, and then we have this passage here, uh, and and that's most of it. Um, but in Romans 2.27, letter, the letter of the law doesn't refer to a perverted understanding of God's law, but to possession of the law in written form. The Jews in the Old Testament had the letter of the law. This was a great thing. They had the law. Romans 2.29, uh, letter describes the external rite of circumcision, which is the application of the law, which Paul contrasts with spiritual circumcision, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So possessing the written code is only wrong because it would, in, if it led to a false sense of security in an insufficient law. In Romans 7, 7, 6, the oldness of the law and the newness of the spirit has the same idea. It, it, it focuses on two different ways of serving, one under the Old Testament dispensation and one under the New Testament dispensation of the church age. Letter refers to the concrete demands of the law written in stone, whereas the spirit refers to the new nature that is given to the believer and the enhancement from God the Holy Spirit that we get uh, with that. So, fourth, and this is the correct interpretation, uh, it refers to different modes of the life of the believer. The letter is the Old Testament. It's insufficient. It's not wrong. It's insufficient. And the Spirit is the new power given in the church age. This is what we see in our passage in Romans 7, 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. It condemned us. It did not provide life. We're delivered from it so that now we should serve in the newness of the Spirit not in the oldness of the law, which was insufficient. This is the same thing Paul's saying in Galatians 3, 10 through 14. 
Look at the first statement. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. The best that you could get from obeying the law was a realization of condemnation. The law just condemned you. It was a condemnation of what Paul calls in Second uh, Corinthians 3.7, the ministry of death, the ministry that made people realize they were spiritually dead and incapable. Verse 11 here in Galatians 3.11 says, No one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith, not by the works of the law. Yet the law is not of faith, verse 12, but the man who does them shall live by them. Skip down to 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So in the church age, that judgment of the law is what we're redeemed from. And then look at verse 14. For the purpose that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Why? So we can receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Christ fulfills the law so that the law which only condemns us is ended so that we can receive the promise of the Spirit which now gives us the ability to fulfill the law. So briefly, what we see here in the next three verses or five verses, actually going on to verse 11, is this contrast between the insufficiency of the law and the sufficiency of the Spirit. But this is a problem we have today. Nobody in the church, whether you're charismatic or not, believes in the sufficiency of the, script, of the Spirit. They believe in this, you know, people believe in the sufficiency of the Bible plus something. But n- Christians today give it a lot of lip service and no internal obedience in reality. Verse 7 says, If, and this is true, this is the uh, Protestant, if the ministry of death, that is the law, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, see, it's a good thing, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. See, it's all about, it had a glory of its own, but it's not the glory we have today. The if is true, but the uh, the, the second part, the apodosis, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? See, if that had a glory of its own, and it did, look at Moses' face. It reflected the glory of God. It was wonderful. But what we have today is from the Spirit, it's even more wonderful. Then we have the second condition. For if the ministry of condemnation, that's what the law did, it condemned. If that had glory... The ministry of righteousness, which is what we have today, it's a ministry of righteousness, exceeds in even more glory. So what we see here, if you look at the bottom note, the ministry of death, the phrase written on stones, and the phrase ministry of condemnation all refer to the Mosaic Law. They're just different ways of talking about the Mosaic Law. It made people aware that they were spiritually dead. It was written on stone. It was permanent. And, it, and, and it's a ministry of condemnation. But it's replaced by the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of righteousness, which is the church age. So Paul concludes, For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect. That is, even what was made glorious, that is the law, had no glory with reference to today. Compare the, the Old Testament law to today, it really had a minimal glory because of the glory that excels its church age glory. Second Corinthians 3.11, For if what is passing away was glorious, that's the law, it's passing away, 
what remains is much more glorious. That's what we have today. It's more glorious. Now, we have to understand that. Now, I don't have time to go into this. We'll probably start with it next time. But this parallels what Paul says in the first four verses of Romans 8. So I'm going to put this together next time briefly and show how that all that is said in 2 Corinthians 3 dovetails with what Paul is saying in Romans 7 and 8, that the law was just insufficient. That's all Romans 7 is about. It can't do it. Morality is great, but it's not spirituality. Morality is human beings being ethical in their own effort and energy. It doesn't cut ice with God. It doesn't make you more spiritual. The only thing that can make it in the Christian life is for us to learn to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, walking in fellowship, learning the Word, and living it out in our life. Without that, it's just a sham. It's just going through the motions. We have to focus on these riches that God has given us in the church age. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. We thank you we still have the freedom to study clearly what your word teaches, to proclaim the truth in this country, for there are many forces that are working against that, that are hostile to freedom, hostile to the freedom of conscience, which is at the very core of real freedom which is at the core of religious freedom and at the core of freedom to teach the Word of God. There are too many that seek to attack this, through, whether it's through taxes or whether it's through restrictions on uh, the Second Amendment or whether it's through backdoor restrictions on the First Amendment rights of free speech and uh, redefining free speech. Father, we pray that you would give us some leaders in Congress who stand firm for the Constitution, for the truth, who continue to fight to maintain our freedoms. But above all, we know that our real freedom is in Christ, and it's only on the basis of learning to exploit our real liberty in Christ that we can ever have hope, real hope, for this country and for our own prosperity within this country. But whatever comes, we know that you are in control and that we can trust in you, and that we need to focus on being a good witness, which begins with a, an extensive knowledge of your word in our souls, so that we can fulfill our mission and ministry of the new covenant. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.